All right. Uh, good evening, uh, brothers and sisters in the faith. Thank you so much for attending our Bible History Project. Can't believe we are on episode number 11. That was pretty quick, wouldn't you say? Episode number 11, Genesis chapter 14. Last week, we talked about the walk of faith concerning the life of Abraham. Today, we're going to talk about fighting for your faith so that we can attain victory of faith. Before we proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Almighty and merciful Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy upon us all. We believe, Father, you have a purpose for our life. Help us to know that, O God, and to fulfill it with courage. Father, be with us throughout the study of your holy words. May our faith be nourished as always as we look to you in prayer and trust. Lord Jesus, we also glorify you today. May you strengthen our faith. And bless us as we study the teachings from our God. Amen. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. So, so today we're going to study just one chapter of Genesis chapter 14. And last week we left off with the two parting ways, right? Abraham and Lot. A lot took the land towards the Jordan Valley. And of course, as usual, our hero, Abram, or Abraham, he remained in the land of Canaan. Now, what happened shortly after this parting of ways? Let's begin Genesis chapter 14, 1 to 2. Four kings. Now, these are hard names to pronounce. I know I'm going to kill the pronunciation. Please forgive me. Amraphel of Babylonia, or Shinar. Arioch of Elasar, Chedor Laomer of Elam, and Tidal of Goim went to war against five other kings, Bera of Sodom, Pirsha of Gomorrah, Shinab of Admah, Shemaber of Zebuim, and the king of Bela or Zoar. How many here are familiar with all of these names? Probably not, right? But they were kings during the days of Abraham. There were four kings who went to war against five other kings. Kings, we are not surprised by this at all because we know when we study human history in thousands of years of human existence, there's only been 300 years of peace. Did you know that? I guess people like conflict for some reason, people like to fight in wars, and so we study history and we see there are wars taking place, and this is the first record of the first war in human history. History, the four kings that went against the five other kings. Now, who were they? Let's look at the setting of this war. Next slide, please. We have like a picture. You notice Mediterranean Sea, Persian Gulf to the east, Caspian Sea, the Black Sea. We are in the Middle East. We're not surprised the first war in recorded history took place in the Middle East. There are many wars taking place in the Middle East, even today as we speak. So we have the four kings against the five kings. Who were the four kings? Next slide. They were basically the kings up north, the kings of the north. We can call them white walkers, <laughs> or maybe not. How many here watch Games of Thrones or uh, Game of Thrones? Yeah, please forgive me if I kind of inject some verbiage from the Game of Thrones myth but th these are the four kings who basically were leading their kingdoms there up north. And they waged war against the five kingdoms towards the south. Where were they located? Next slide, please. Right there by the Mediterranean Sea, by Canaan, the Jordan Valley. Who was in the Jordan Valley, by the way? Lot, right? And Abram was there in Canaan. So what was this war all about? Let's read Genesis 14, 3 down to 4. These five kings, they were from the south, the five kings from the south, formed an alliance and joined forces in Sidim Valley, which is now called the Dead Sea. They had been under the control of Chedor Laomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. I guess... There was one ruler who sat in the Iron Throne, <laughs> right? What was his name? Shedor Laomer from 
the north. He ruled the seven kingdoms. I'm sorry. He ruled all the kingdoms, right? Until eventually there were five who decided, you know what? Let's form our own group. And let's rebel against this king from Elam. And so that's what they decided to do because they were not willing to pay the annual tribute or the tax to this king. They wanted to separate from his rulership. And so they decided to band together, form an alliance, go to the Dead Sea, and rebel against Chedor Laomer. Next slide. So we have the war between the north and the south. Four against five. Who do you think is going to win? Four versus five. <laughs> Who is going to win? Yeah? Just Ramila. Five. That's what I thought too, right? Five is more than four. Therefore, the southern city-states would destroy the northern kingdoms. That's what I thought. But let's find out what happened. Next slide. Genesis 14, 5 to 7. In the 14th year of Chedor Laomer, and his allies came with their armies and defeated the Rephaim. If you still remember, the Rephaim, they were a race of giants. So they defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim. If you still remember, the Emim also were descendants of giants in the plain of Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the mountains of Edom, pursuing them as far as the El Paran on the edge of the desert. Then they turned around and came back to Kadesh, then known as En Mishpat. They conquered all the land of the Amalekites and defeated the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And so when the four kings up north, led by Chedor Laomer, find that, found out about the revolt, about the rebellion, what did he do? He went south immediately to quelch the rebellion. On, the, on their way to the south, what happened? They conquered all of the cities in their path. Next slide, please. And so in their path, the four kings destroyed seven cities before they had war with the five kings in the Death Sea or in the Valley of Sidim. Can you imagine how powerful these four kingdoms were led by Shadur Laomer? Four against five. I wonder who eventually won that battle. Let's go to Genesis 14, 8 down to 10. Then the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebuim, and Bela drew up their armies for battle in Sidim Valley and fought against the kings of Elam, Goim, Babylonia, and Elasar. Five kings against four. The valley was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to run away from the battle, they fell into the pits. But the other three kings escaped to the mountains. It looks like the battle was lopsided, right? No contest at all. This is why the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the five kingdoms, because they were losing so badly, they had to run away from the other kings. And as they tried to run away, what happened to them? They fell into the tar pits. And the victory went to the kings of Babylon. And so the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, together with their alliance, were soundly defeated by the four kings. And because of this defeat, because of their victory, who became a prisoner of war. You know, when you win one war, you win a war, uh, there's going to be casualties and there's going to be prisoners, right? Who was a notable prisoner of war after the war concluded? What do you think his name is? Who do you think it is? Huh? Who was a prisoner of war? Let's find out. Genesis 14, 11 down to 12. The four kings took everything in Sodom and Gomorrah, including the food, and went away. Lot, Abram's nephew, was living in Sodom. So they took him and all his possessions who became a prisoner of war the nephew of abram his name is lot how did he get himself into this big mess because he decided to live where in sodom now how did he end up being in sodom if you still remember in genesis 13 
when Abram told Lot, look at the land and choose for yourself the place you want to occupy, the place where you will go, we will go the opposite direction. Remember? We're going to part ways. And so what did Abram or what did Lot decide or choose for himself? Let's read Genesis 13, 10 to 13. Lot looked around, right, and saw that the whole Jordan Valley all the way to Zoar had plenty of water, like the garden of the Lord, or like the land of Egypt. This was before the land had destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the whole Jordan Valley for himself and moved away toward the east. That is how the two men parted. Abram stayed in the land of Canaan, and Lot settled among the cities in the valley and camped near Sodom, whose people were wicked and sinned against the Lord. How did Lot end up in Sodom in the first place? Because he camped near Sodom. His intention was not to live in Sodom. His intention was just to camp near Sodom. However, when we compromise the will of God, eventually it's going to influence us. This is why we should not say to ourselves, I'm not going to be influenced by the wickedness that surrounds me. I have enough inner strength. I can overcome the temptation. Brethren, the environment is stronger than willpower. This is why if you want to avoid having to face difficult temptations in your life, the best way to deal with that is to run away from temptation, right? But not a lot. For some reason, he had a preference for the land there in Sodom. You know why? Because he got a taste of that kind of life when he was in Egypt. This is why if you look at the passage, when he saw the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, it reminded him of the land of Egypt. So Egypt was still in his mind. And eventually, he camped near Sodom. When you camp near Sodom, eventually you live in Sodom. And when you live in Sodom, eventually you're going to be a captive there in Sodom. So that's what happened to Lot. He did not learn the easy way. He had to learn the hard way. Now he's a prisoner of war. Now, it's interesting. I just want to, in the next passage, I'm going to show you. I'm going to put all the different names together. Next slide, please. Are you familiar with these names? These are the names I mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. These were the kings and their kingdoms. Okay. Now, remember when we studied Genesis 1 and Genesis 5? And we looked at the meanings of the different names. And we strung together the meanings of the different names. And it told us a theme and a story. It's always fascinating when you do that to biblical characters and even, even names of cities. And so let's go ahead and look at the Hebrew names or the Hebrew definition or meanings of the names of the kings and kingdoms mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. Is that okay? Before we go on. Because it's very interesting. For example, Am Raphael. What is the definition or the meaning of Am Raphael? Take note, in biblical times, names were given as influenced by God to represent their character or their destiny. That's why a study of biblical names is very fruitful. Am Raphael. What is the meaning of that? Anyone want to guess what that means? Am Raphael. Let's not go ahead and get into that. Let's just go look at the next slide. Amraphel means one that speaks dark things. Who can you think of, a, of one who speaks dark things? Probably the devil, right? The adversary of our faith. Shinar or Babylon. What does that mean? Next slide, please. Casting out. Okay. So we have one that speaks dark things. Casting out. Okay, Ariok, what does that mean? Next slide, please. The mighty lion. Who is called the mighty lion in the Holy Bible? Who is that? The mighty lion is also called the Lamb of God. Who was also called the mighty lion? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have one that speaks dark things, casts out the mighty lion. Or our Lord Jesus Christ. How about Elasar? What does that mean? Elasar. Next slide. God. 
has chastened, who was punished by God and cast to the earth with chains that will confine him to everlasting punishment. Who is that? The adversary, right? Shedor uh, Laomer, what does that mean? Handful of sheaves or make merchandise of. What does that mean? Well, we got to look at the next one. Elam, what does that mean? Elam, forever. Hmm. Bera, what does that mean? Next slide. Excelling in evil, son of evil. Okay. And then uh, let's go to Sodom. What does that mean? Sodom, locked up, flaming, burning. Gomorrah, or Birsha, Birsha. What does Birsha mean? Next slide. Son of wickedness, strong. Gomorrah, habitation, people of fear, depression. Shinab, what does that mean? Father has turned, father has turned. Adma, what does that mean? Red earth, red earth. You can actually buy like a, a, a book called Hebrew Names, and you, look up, you can look up all these names and find out what they actually mean. Uh, Shemeber, Shemeber, what does that mean? Illustrious, name of celebrity. Zeboim, Zeboim, gathering of troops. Bela or Zoar, what does that mean? Consume, devour, whiteness, light. When you look at all the names, and when you look at them together like this, it kind of forms a theme, doesn't it? Can you kind of sense what that theme is all about? Yeah? When you look at the first one, one that speaks dark things, the devil casts out, casts out the mighty lion, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was chastened by God, punished forever. However, he is going to take a handful of people with him forever. I will lock them up forever. They will be in flaming fire and burning together. And who will he use as instruments? Those excelling in evil, son of evil, son of wickedness. Does this ring a bell? Son of evil, son of wickedness, the anti-Christ. Remember? And what will God do? Or what will the son of wickedness and the son of evil do? They will cause people to be afraid. They will rule with an iron hand. They will rule by fear. That's the work of the Antichrist, the one who is the replacement of our Lord Jesus Christ. What else? But God, the Father, has turned the earth red. In other words, the earth will be burned by fire. When is that day? On the day of judgment, right? And after the day of judgment, what will happen? There's going to be one who will rise up, gather up the troops who will be deceived, and try to take over the people of God and their encampment. But what will happen? Fire from heaven will come down to consume and devour, devour them. Whiteness and light. Interesting, isn't it? This is why when you look at the names included in Genesis chapter 14, underneath the surface meaning, you will find clues of an event or events that will take place toward the end times. What is it trying to tell us? Next slide. It tells of a spiritual battle led by the evil one and his minions, especially the Antichrist figures, to take place during the end times, after which they are permanently devoured by fire. And so Genesis 14 is telling us about an advanced event that will take place right before the day of judgment. And brothers and sisters, just want to let you know, the spiritual battle is taking place right now. This is why we have to make a choice. What is that choice? Next slide. Some people are likened to Lot, and some are likened to who? Abram. Who would you want to choose to be like? Lot or Abram? Take note, Lot played with Sodom, and he was held captive in Sodom. We don't want to be like Lot. We want to be like who? Abram. Well, what happened to Abram when he found out about Lot's situation? Genesis 14, verse 13, But a man escaped and reported all this to Abram, the Hebrew, who was living near the sacred trees belonging to Mamre, the Amorite. Mamre and his brothers, Eshol and Aner, were Abram's allies. 
let's pretend for a while that you were Abram, okay? So you were living at peace in Canaan. All of a sudden, your dear nephew who chose that land, the Jordan Valley, you hear news that he was being held captive by the four kings led by Shedor Laomer. What would you do if you were Abram? Be honest. What would you have done? <laughs> You're all quiet. <laughs> what would you have done? Yes. Yeah, Ramila. In the morning, I probably would have seen if I could go save him, but I wouldn't. I would check out the risks of it. I love it. <laughs> I love that answer. Did you hear what she said? I wish you were here all the time for our Bible studies. <laughs> right? It breaks the silence. <laughs> What did she say? She said, you know what? I want to take risk assessment. <laughs> I want to save him because after all, he's my nephew. He's family. He's, family. he's relative. The problem is that there's a chance that I can get captured. And that's, no, that's not good at all. Two people captured. That's right. I just want to make, like, make sure if I'm going to do it, it has to be as accurate as possible. I have to have a plan that's actually going to be good. Double check it, triple check it. And I love it, don't you? <laughs> He, he can, she can be a, like the hand of the king, right? <laughs> the next Tyrion Lannister is right there. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. Right? I mean, personally, I probably would say, you know, Lot, you made the choice. Now, what were the consequences? Right? But I'm not Abram. You know what Abram said? You know what Abram did when he found out? What do you think he did? <laughs> Let's read. Remember, he's just one man. And these four kings, they defeated everyone in their path, right? Easily at that. And so I wonder what he did. Genesis 14, verse 14, when Abram heard that the, his nephew had been captured, he called together all the fighting men in his camp, 318 in all. It's <laughs> a lot of people, right? And pursued the four kings all the way to Dan. Oh my goodness. How many people did he have to fight with him? How many? 318. What do you think? Do you think they have a chance? You know, if I was strategizing by sight, I'd probably say a lot. You know, I checked and double-checked and triple-checked. There's just no way I can defeat four kings and their kingdoms with 318 people. I'm going to be captured myself, right? So when you use logic, you say to yourself, no chance, no chance whatsoever. But you know, Abram's a different kind of guy, <laughs> right? Because if he will use logic and reasoning, he would say no chance at all, 318. But you know what? Abram had courage, right? Sometimes courage can get you in trouble, <laughs> right? But Abram's courage is different. You see, his courage is based on his walk with our Almighty God. This is why if we want to learn to fight by faith, we need to first have courage based on our walk with God. That's the first principle I want you to learn. Next slide, please. Fighting by faith begins with courage. And that courage comes from walking with God. The more you walk with God, the more you walk by faith, the more you will overcome fear. There are many things in life that will cause us to be afraid. But the closer you are to God, the less afraid you are going to be. The closer you are to God, the more courage you have. So Abram, he was courageous because he was close to God. He was devoted to our Almighty God. Last week, we talked about walking by faith. Next slide. How do we do that? Just a quick summary of last week's lesson. Begins with a calling, number one. Number two, responds with obedience. Number three, requires sacrifices. Number four, relies on promises and non-explanations. Number five, focuses on worshiping and glorifying God. Number six, believes in God's provision in times of adversity. Number seven, does not use deception as a means to an end. Number eight, relies on God to do the impossible. Number nine, gives generously. Abram walked with God, walked by faith, and because of this, he developed a courage based on his relationship with God. That's number one. And so because of his faith and his courage, what did he decide to do? Next slide. Genesis 14, 15 and 16. Then he divided his men into groups, attacked the enemy by night, and defeated them. He chased them as far as Hobath, north of Damascus. 
and got back all the loot that had been taken. He also brought back his nephew Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other prisoners. And so what did uh, Abram do because of his courage that came about because of his relationship with our almighty God? He came up first with a plan, right? Did you notice that? He had a strategy. What was his strategy? Divide his men into groups. Attack the enemy by, enemy by night. Why by night? Yes. Probably be asleep because they were fought. Love it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he's not going to go attack. He has no chance. Why is he shot? So then they're going to be asleep. That's it. And then they won't even notice the infantry in time because it was already too late. <laughs> That's right. The element of surprise, right? That's it. Attack by night. No one's expecting any kind of threat from Abraham and his 318. <laughs> no one ever expected that, right? And so by stealth, secrecy he attacked and so abram next slide please fighting by faith requires that we do our part right planning and implementation it doesn't mean that when you fight by faith you simply pray to god lord god please help me get my nephew back and god all of a sudden next day is going to show up on your doorstep oh here's your nephew that's not the way god works you see, God has his part, we have ours. We have to do our part first. God will do his. God will do the heavy lifting, yes. But we have to do our part first. What is our part? We have to use our mind. We have to plan. And after we plan, we have to execute. We have to implement swiftly, just like Abram. And so Abram became victorious. And sometimes when you are victorious, you are prone to making mistakes, right? <coughs> And so what happened after he won the victory of the battle? Let's read Genesis 14, verse 17. When Abram came back from his victory over Chedor Laomer and the other kings, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in Shavi Valley, also called King's Valley. So after he won the victory, he comes a visitor, the king of Sodom. Apparently, he survived the tar pits. And so he goes to visit Abram, but he was not the only king that visits Abram. I want you to take note of this. There was the first king who visited him, right? The king of Sodom. Is Sodom known for righteousness or wickedness? Wickedness, right? He was the first king that knocks on the door of Abram after his victory. Always keep in mind, when you're victorious, when you are successful at something, God blesses you in some way. Guess who's going to knock first on your door? The devil. Yeah. This is why we hear, we hear a lot of stories about people after they succeed, they begin to fall because they're not careful. Here's Abram. He was successful. Here comes the king of Sodom who shows up. But there was another king that showed up. I wonder who. This is very interesting. Genesis 14 verse 18 down to 20. And Melchizedek. How many here? Have heard of Melchizedek before? Have you heard of him before? Melchizedek? Yeah? Very, very strange king. Melchizedek, who was king of Salem and also a priest of the Most High God, brought bread and wine to Abram, blessed him and said, May the Most High God, who made heaven and earth, Bless Abram. May the most high God who gave you victory over your enemies be praised. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the loot he had recovered. Here's a strange visitor. A king. King of what kingdom? A king of Salem. But he was not just a king. The Bible says he was also what? A priest. Of the Most High God. What did he bring with him? Bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? Bread and wine? What else? He blesses Abram. And Abram accepts the blessing from this person and gives him a tenth of what he got or what he had recovered from the war. In other words, Abram 
was humble enough to receive this blessing, even giving a tenth of all that he had recovered. You know, if Abram was a proud person, he probably would have ignored Melchizedek, right? You know, God speaks to me. God appeared to me. Who are you to bless me? And so he might think of exclusivity. God only speaks to me, not to anyone else. The one that spoke to you was a false god. But he was humble because he accepted the fact that God can speak to and reveal to anyone he so chooses whatever he wants to reveal. Do you believe that? You know, sometimes we have an exclusivistic mindset. It's just us and no one else, right? We need to remove that from our mindset. God can choose anyone that he wants. Here's Abram, chosen and called by God, yes. But there was another one also chosen by God. What's his name? Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was even greater than Abraham. Why? Because he gave a tenth of what he recovered to Melchizedek and received the blessing from Melchizedek. And so this gives us another principle to live by. Next slide. Fighting by faith remains humble in victory, acknowledges God and takes no glory for himself or herself. Remember, the moment you take glory for yourself, that's the beginning of your downfall. This is why sometimes our greatest enemy in life is success. Did you get that? Be careful with success because so many people have fallen because of success. The people of Israel fell because of their success. Be careful with that. Now, what did the king of Sodom want from Abram? Genesis 14, 21 to 23, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what, you, what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. What was the offer of Sodom, or king, the king of Sodom, to Abram? Keep all the goods that, that you have recovered. But what was the reply of Abram? He said, I swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, I will not take anything from you because you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. You see, if he were to take some of the bounty that came from the kingdom of Sodom, then he would have been connected with the king of Sodom. He did not want to have any fellowship with the kingdom of Sodom because that would be to betray his God. You see, he was committed and loyal to his God. He relied completely upon who? God, not upon riches, not upon the power that kings can give you, but he relied solely upon the strength and the power of God. Next slide. So fighting by faith requires that we place our complete trust in God alone and not human beings or human agencies. In fact, God gives us a warning. If we place our trust in human beings or human agencies, what is that? Jeremiah 17, 5 to 6. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. What is the warning of God if we place our hope, our trust, our confidence in human beings and what they're able to do? The Bible says they're cursed. To what are they likened to? Like stunted shrubs in the desert. In other words, they have no future. They'll be destroyed. They will wilt and they will quickly die. On the other hand, if we place our confidence and trust in God, what would be our future? 17, 7 to 8, but blessed. Notice the difference? Those who place their hope and trust in human beings and their powers and abilities are cursed. But blessed are those who trust, who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They're like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into water. 
Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. This is way better than placing your hope or trust in human beings. This is why God has also said, let the wise not boast of their wisdom, the rich not boast of their riches, the powerful not boast of their power. If you want to boast, boast that you know who? Our Almighty God. Place your hope and trust and confidence in God alone because God alone is enough, more than enough, to provide us with everything that we need in our life. Now, what else can we learn from Abram? This is the last uh, verse in Genesis chapter 14. Okay, what is that? Genesis 14, 24, the last verse. I will take nothing for myself, Abraham said, right? I will accept only what my men have used. This was his response to the king of uh, Sodom. But let my allies, Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre, take their share. And so he's Abram. He says to the king, you know, I'm not going to take anything from you because I want God to get the glory, not you. You get that? But for these men... I'm not going to impose my beliefs upon these men. Let my allies, Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre, whatever they want, let them take their share. Yes, Abram led by example, but he did not impose what he wanted. Did you get that? You know, sometimes when you become, when you become a, the, the victory, the victor of war, sometimes there's a tendency to enslave the people that you beat, right? But not Abram. The people that he got from the four kings, he set them free. Do what you want. He wasn't a tyrant. He wasn't a dictator. And this is something we need to learn, especially if we are spiritual leaders, especially if we are parents who lead our children. Okay? Why? Next slide. This is a principle that we have to learn. Fighting by faith leads by example, admonishes gently. You know, you can teach your children, you can teach your constituents, this is what I want, this is what is nice, this is what is preferred, but you never impose your values. You get that? You have your beliefs, you have your principles, you have your convictions, amen! But do not impose that on someone else. You can influence them the best way that you can. You can teach them, admonish them, you can live by example, never impose it because it will backfire on you. Abram never imposed that upon his men. He led by example. By, by his good example, many chose to follow him. And he became a successful patriarch to the point that even during the Christian era, people would reference Abraham, calling him the father of our faith. You see the influence of Abraham? This is why we need to learn from Abraham how to walk by faith and how to fight by Faith. Next slide. So this is a, a summary of how we can fight by faith. Number one, fighting by faith begins with what? Courage. Where's this courage from? From our walk with God. Number two, fighting by faith requires that we do our part, right? Planning and implementation. That's our part. God's help and provision. That's his part. Number three, fighting by faith remains humble. Victory acknowledges God and takes no glory for himself or for herself. Number four, fighting by faith requires that we place our complete trust in God alone, not in human beings or human agencies. Number five, fighting by faith leads by example, admonishes gently, but will never impose these values. That's chapter 14 of Genesis. Like what we typically do when we study the chapters in the Old Testament, we try to look for hints of the coming of, the Messiah, right? Next slide, please. Where can we find a hint of the promise of the Messiah? Did you find it? Did you find it? Did you see like a hint of, uh, where could this hint be of a promise of a Messiah? In Genesis chapter 14. Where? Huh? My wife, I think, knows the answer. Let's call on her. What is it? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. <laughs> Bread and wine. Okay. Next slide, please. Here it is. Melchizedek. Yeah. Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who was what? King. He was king. Not only was he king, he was also what? Priest. He brought what? Bread and wine. 
I mean, who was an example in the New Testament who gave bread and wine and instituted the Holy Supper? Who was that? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Was the Lord Jesus Christ a king? Was the Lord Jesus Christ a priest? Yeah. Was the Lord Jesus Christ, did he give blessing? Yeah. So Melchizedek was there in Genesis to give us a type of Christ. Next slide. What else? What does the, the New Testament, what do the New Testament writers say about Melchizedek? Hebrews 7, 1 to 2. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. Let's, let's pause it for a while. He was king of Salem. You know where Salem is today? Do you know where Salem is today? No, that's a different Salem. <laughs> Do you know where in the Middle East? Do you know where Salem is today? I'll give you a, I'll give you a hint. You put a J-E-R in front of it. What do you get? Yeah. Jeru Salem. So he was the king of Jerusalem. But there's a different, there's also a meaning of Salem. As Abraham was coming back from the battle in which he defeated the four kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. And Abraham gave him one-tenth of all he had taken. The first meaning of Melchizedek's name is king of righteousness. Who is known as the king or piece of righteousness? Jesus. And because he was king of Salem, his name also means king of peace. Who is also referred to as the king of peace? Jesus. Huh. Melchizedek seems to be a type of Christ. What else? Hebrews 7, uh, 3. This is the mysterious part about Melchizedek. There is no record of Melchizedek's father or mother or of any of his ancestors. No record of his birth or of his death. He is like the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. That is very strange, wouldn't you think? Right? So when we look at all the clues, next slide, who does Melchizedek typify? Number one, he's a priest, a high priest of that. Number two, a king of righteousness, a king of peace, gives blessings, gave bread and wine, and is like the Son of God, and dwells in Salem, now called Jerusalem. When you look at all those clues, Melchizedek is a type of Christ, right? That's why back in Genesis chapter 14, we can already see a hint of the coming Messiah and the work that this Messiah is going to do. What else do the New Testament writers say about him? Hebrews 7, 15 and 17, the matter becomes even plainer. A different priest has appeared who is like Melchizedek. He was made a priest, not by human rules and regulations, but through the power of a life which has no end. For the scripture says, you will be a priest forever in the priestly order of Melchizedek. Who was that referred to? Our Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to be given the priesthood like the priesthood of Melchizedek. What was the priesthood of Melchizedek? He was not just a priest. He was also what? A king. Study the kings of Israel and Judah. What do you notice? The king is different from the priest. You had a high priest, you also had a king. But there was a separation of those powers. But it was Melchizedek who had those two powers in one. Jesus would be king. He would be priest of the Melchizedek order because he would be both priest and king. And so we can see here the Lord Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of another kind of Melchizedek. Why is this important? Hebrews 7, 20, 22. In addition, there's also God's vow. There was no such vow when the others were made priests, but Jesus became a priest by means of a vow when God said to him, the Lord has made a solemn promise and will not take it back. You will be a priest forever. This difference then also makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. And so because of his priesthood. He creates a better covenant for each and every one of us. So Genesis 14, it's a very powerful chapter because underneath the surface meaning, we know it tells of future events. Next slide, we're almost done. End time events foreshadowed by Genesis 14, we have two. What's number one? Next slide. Tells of a spiritual battle led by the evil one and his minions to take place during the end times after which they are permanently devoured by fire. 
And number two, tells of a king like Melchizedek who will give a blessing for those who are victorious over evil and will sit beside his throne. Isn't that nice? That's in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 also teaches us about two types of people in the end times. What are they? Next slide. Two types of people foreshadowed by Genesis 14. Give me, give me a guess. What do you think? Huh? Two types of people foreshadowed there in Genesis chapter 14. We talked about the events, the battle, and the victory, right? Two types of people. Who are they? Lot and? Wow, Brother Cesar. Next slide, please. Those like Lot who lived by sight, loved the ways of the world, and ignored the discipline of God. You know, after Lot was rescued by Abram, right, from his captivity there in Sodom, you know what he did after that? He went back to Sodom. <laughs> he went back to Sodom. Can you believe that? He ignored the discipline of God. Next slide. And those like Abraham who live by faith, walk by faith, fight by faith because of their devotion to our almighty God. Two types of people. Let's choose to be like Abraham. Walk by faith, fight by faith, and receive the victory of faith. How can we fight by faith? We're almost done. Let's just go to Ephesians 6, 10, and 13 finally because we are in a battle now, right? We want to be like Abraham who wins the battle. And after Abraham wins the battle, Melchizedek gives him what? A blessing. If we win this battle that's taking place right now, we too will be given a blessing and a reward by someone greater than Melchizedek. Who is that? Our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we want to win that battle. So how do we do it? Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Finally, build up your strength in union with the Lord. And by means of his mighty power, put on all the armor that God gives you. So that you will be able to stand up against the devil's evil tricks. For we are not, a, we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world. The rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. So put on God's armor now. Then when the evil day comes, you will be able to resist the enemy's attacks. And after fighting to the end, you will still hold your ground. What do we need to do so that we can win that battle, become victorious in the faith? Number one, we have to build our strength in union with our Lord, Jesus Christ. Number two, we have to put on the whole armor of God. You see, God wants us to put on that armor. But before we can put on that armor, we have to strengthen ourselves in union with Christ, Jesus. This is why we have to walk with God so that we can fight the fight of faith. But we have to wear that armor. What is that armor? Ephesians 6, 14 to 18. So stand ready with truth as a belt. That's one, the truth. What else? With righteousness as your breastplate. That's two. We have to live a righteous and holy life. What else? And as your shoes, the readiness to announce the good news. We have to share our faith. What else? Faith as a shield. We have to live by faith and walk by faith. What else? And accept salvation as a helmet and the word of God as the sword which the Spirit gives you. Do all this in prayer, asking for God's help. Pray on every occasion as the Spirit leads. For this reason, keep alert and never give up. Pray always for all God's people. If we want to win the fight for our faith, we have to put on the whole armor of God. We have to pray to God. And lastly, we must not give up. Even when you think you're losing, even when you are on the verge of failing, even if you have fallen, so long as you are alive, never give up. Because so long as you are alive, you have hope, right? Because all it takes. All it takes is for God to show up in our life. And it doesn't matter what our circumstances may be. Everything will be turned around for our good. So never, ever give up. That is how we fight for our faith. And when we are victorious, what is the reward? Final passage of our studies today, the book of Revelation <clears throat> 3 verse 21, to those who win the victory, I will give the right to sit beside me on my throne, just as I have been victorious, and now sit by my Father on His throne. Who's the one speaking there? Lord Jesus Christ.
Christ was victorious in his fight against the evil one. If we will be victorious, we too will sit beside the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot think of any greater victory than that, right? That's the ultimate victory when you are able to sit alongside the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you call that victory? Next slide. The victory of faith. But before you can have that victory of faith, you have to what? You got to fight. That victory will not be given to you on a silver platter. It will cost you. Are you willing to pay the price of the victory of faith? Because that price is to fight for your faith. Fight by faith. And that begins with courage because of your walk by faith. Walking with our almighty God. We hope this is what all of us will be able to achieve when that last trumpet has been blown. We will all sit in the throne together with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us all stand, brethren, and we shall pray together. Everlasting and most holy Father, thank you so much, gracious God, for giving us your wisdom, giving us principles to live by as we fight this battle of faith upon which we have been thrusted upon. Help us, O God, to endure, never to give up, looking to you for confidence and strength, never relying on our own abilities, but always placing our complete trust in what you can do for each one of us. Amen. Father, this has been tried and tested in our life. Yes. Numerous occasions, Father, it was you who delivered your people. Yes. Thank you so much for upholding us up until this present time. Yes. We believe that is what you will continue to do because you have compassion. You are merciful to each one of us. Amen. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Because of you, we can stand before our God. Never give up on us. Strengthen our faith. When we face doubts in our life, when we entertain doubts in our minds, help us to overcome them by faith through you that we can remain fighting for faith. And receive its glorious victory. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. You have blessed each and every one of us here. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.